from Kirkco Media. So what you gonna do about it? We've all heard, seen, and read a thousand times about how this or that politician or candidate is polling, pre-debate, post-debate, about this issue, that issue, and we watch incessantly while news announcers give us their organization's reflection of, well, our collective opinion, or at least today's collective opinion. It seems that our society's opinions change about as often as my socks do. Yes, Mike, I mean daily. But where do these statistics come from? How are they sourced, counted, kept honest? Today we're going to deep dive into our own opinions with the help of one of the most respected pollsters in the country. I can't think of a more appropriate subject for this episode of Politics. Meet me in the middle. I'm Bill Curtis. Our panel... Firstly, our co-host, Pulitzer Prize-winning historian, best-selling author, worldwide lecturer, and the widely quoted, socially distant and zoomed-in authority of everything historical and constitutional, Professor Ed Larson. How you doing, Ed? Glad to be back with you, and glad to be with Jane and Patrick Murray. What a treat. Also zooming in, Jane Albrecht. She's an international trade attorney who represented U.S. interests all over the world. She has worked with high-level government officials in many countries, and she's been involved in several U.S. presidential campaigns. Hey, Jane, nice to remotely see you, too. It's always delightful to be here and honored to be here with Patrick Murray as well. So, as you've heard, Monmouth University is one of the most respected polling institutes in the country. We're fortunate that Monmouth's founding director, Patrick Murray, is here with us in the middle today. You'll recognize his voice, of course, because you've heard him so many times doing exit poll analysis and commentary on CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, PBS, NPR, and all the major networks. And since 2005, he's focused Monmouth's polling on everything you can imagine, from presidential, state, and local elections to business studies, nonprofits, TV viewer segmentation, even something close to my heart, magazine reader surveys. Hopefully, podcast next. He's a commentator on politics and public opinions, and that's where we'll be focusing our discussions here on politics. Meet me in the middle. So, Ed, is polling a new thing, or did our founders take voters' temperature back in the formation of America? Good politicians have always had a knack for knowing what the voters think and what they want. Aaron Burr was a master of it. But formal polling is really relatively new, at least within the last century. It started with the growth of the modern newspapers. It was only in the 1930s that Elmo Roper and George Gallup tried to develop a scientific method of polling where you'd try to get a representative sample of people. Now, those representative samples weren't very good. Uh, blacks were almost entirely excluded. And you can look back now and it's almost comical how bad their collections were and how biased they were. Now there are literally hundreds of organizations taking thousands of polls with every election cycle. And uh, with having Patrick Murray on, we've got one of the best. Well, speaking about one of the best, Patrick, how did you get started in this racket? Well, the story that my grandmother tells is that uh, I started when I was about four years old, uh, riding a bus into Philadelphia. And I sat at the front of the bus and I asked everybody who got on the bus if they liked the bus. But I learned my first lesson 
about how you bias a poll by following up that question before they answered with saying, I like the bus. So I am telegraphing to them what the correct answer is. So automatically from the, from the age of four, I was learning how to ask questions and how not to ask questions. But seriously, the most formative experience that I had, which was I was, I was doing a semester in Washington, D.C. as an undergraduate, and I saw this ad in the city paper there and walked in, and it was a pollster. Peter Hart was the, the Democratic pollster. I didn't know whether Democrat, Republican, I had no idea. What I did know uh, was that I was calling and talking to voters in Hawaii and Michigan and Wisconsin and Arkansas and a whole post of interesting places and asking them questions. And I, I realized I was pretty good at that. And I went to Rutgers University, where they had one of the foremost state-level polls at the time, the Eagleton Poll, which started in 1971. And I walked over there one day and just said, I'm interested in practical politics. I'm interested in this stuff. Uh, when I read it in, in the academic literature, you got anything for me to do? And they said, yeah, we got this little project. We just need some help with if you want to do it. And that was it. From that point on, I, wasn't going, I was not going to be a political science professor. I was going to be a pollster. What happened was, as I progressed as a pollster, that experience that I had as an interviewer, talking to people and understanding the interaction that uh, you have when you're trying to get people to tell you their honest opinion, informed me much more than any of the academic work in many ways uh, that I did along the way. How could you tell at the time, Patrick, that you were getting an honest opinion as opposed to the opinion they thought they should give you? How do you create a control for people that are not actually giving you honest answers when you realize that you're getting kind of a load from someone because they're telling you what they think you should be hearing rather than what they're thinking? That's a, yeah, that social desirability bias is important. That's one of the things that I, I said you really need to develop an ear to understand that, you know, a question that you ask may not be as... Uh, innocuous as, as you think. I'm going to give you a, an example from a poll that we just released, which is before COVID hit, were you planning to take a trip for summer vacation? Seems innocuous, right? A yes or no answer. So uh, we got a number, 63%, that was in line with numbers that we had gotten from past years. And of course, we've you know, when we ask follow-up questions, we find that, that fewer people are actually going to take that vacation. That was the purpose we asked it. When we actually looked at how the responses were given by party, Democrats were significantly more likely, 76% or so of Democrats said that they were planning a vacation, which was more than we'd seen for Democrats in the past. But by the same token, only 40-some percent of Republicans said they were planning a vacation, which would mean before COVID hit, 2020 was going to be the lowest year for Republicans taking a vacation in a year in history. Now, that's, there's no way that that's true. What happened was we were asking that question within a series of other questions asking about the impact of COVID. This is a huge problem that we've been facing and has been growing over the past decade, is that almost everything now is viewed through a partisan lens. So that when you get a question, you first are thinking about, well, what does this say about my belief system, rather than simply, you know, do, am I going to do this or not going to do this? And so Republicans who want to defend President Trump want to say, hey, I wasn't planning a vacation because, you know, to let you know that COVID hasn't changed my plans. I had COVID, there's not been a big impact where more Democrats are saying, I did plan a vacation and, and COVID and, and the response of the Republicans and President Trump are what caused me not to be able to take this vacation. Now, when we actually drilled down, we had a bunch of follow-up questions. By the time we got to the follow-up questions about what you actually are going to do, that partisanship disappeared because we were now anchoring it in real behaviors that they said they were going to do tomorrow. Interesting. One of the things I think distinguishes me from another from other pollsters is that I go out there and 
I actually talk to people. Um, you know, I listen in on conversations. This is like how you understand how people talk about things, not by imposing your academic view on how the world should work, but on actually how people talk about them, the vernacular that they use. And I found that when I go out to places like Iowa and New Hampshire in the throes of these presidential primaries, I am able to get people to come out of their shell because they don't know what I think. I'm able to present in a way that whatever you're about to tell me, I don't have a judgment on. Or maybe you even think that I probably will agree with you. I found people saying things to me in those situations that they probably would not say if I had walked up with a TV camera where they were automatically going to say, well, I have to defend President Trump or I have to knock President Trump and defend the Democrats, whatever it happens to be. So let's dive into a polling situation that we all remember. What lessons did we learn from the 2016 Clinton-Trump election? Well, one of the things that I learned is that uh, the media doesn't really understand the error associated with polling. Uh, and one of the things that I looked at is the total error, particularly in the states that were competitive. And so let's say we have 15 states that are the most competitive states. Well, the error in 2016 across those states was no different than the error it was in 2012. And overall, the error in 2016 at the state level was only slightly higher than it had been on average. What happened was, what the, the error was off enough in a few states that it changed the electoral vote outcome. Whereas in 2012, it did not do that. So the errors that are inherent in the polling did not change what our expectations were going into the election. That was the key. The same amount of error was there. It was just our expectations were held up even with the error in 2012, but they were, our expectations were not met in 2016. When you polled for 2016, did you poll based on the Electoral College or did you poll based on popular vote? We polled based on popular vote. If you're going to do Electoral College, you do a 50-state poll, which means you have to have a large enough sample size in all 50 states. So you're focused on those 15 states. But what happens is if the 15 states that are most competitive are close, then the polling errors are going to, uh, potential errors are going to be exacerbated. And that was the problem that we found. The public had shifted in terms of how they voted based on their educational level. In the past, the difference between Voters with a college degree and voters without a college degree didn't ma matter all that much. Now, starting in 2016, it mattered. And because we didn't have a proper weight in our voter list to weight education, a lot of pollsters didn't weight by education. But that only accounted for about one or two points of the total error. We're talking about a four-point error overall. We found that more of our likely voters who said they were going to vote for Hillary Clinton decided to stay home uh, than Trump voters. Uh, and that accounted for a point or two. Uh, these are things that you can't predict in a poll. And, th and that was my big problem with the polling error in 2016 was not so much about the polling. It was about the number of articles out there that use the word predict. Polls don't predict anything. Polls tell you what things are at the time you take the poll. Now, the fact that polls are fairly accurate in terms of elections is because very little usually changes between the time a poll is taken and the election, if you're talking about a poll that's taken within a week of the election, that pretty much the die is cast. And that's why polls are accurate, not because they're predicting what will happen, is because what was the lay of the land on the day the poll was taken didn't change by the time we got to the election. And that's why polls aren't in, then in and of themselves predictive. It is, they just tell you what is at the time. And as long as things aren't volatile in the last few days, and that certainly was not the case in 2016, then you're not going to get changes. And what happened is we had a volatile election. We had 
enough people moving around, and we had a number of polls that had the race in these key states within five points. And all that said was, well, this is going to be a close race, and it looks like Hillary Clinton's ahead, but you shouldn't put all your money on that because we know that things are going to be changing between now, the time we took the poll, and Election Day. Is it possible that in 2016 people weren't really willing to admit out loud that they were thinking of voting for Trump? There were some of those people. And I had looked at my poll, particularly in Pennsylvania. What we discovered was in urban areas and suburban areas, which made up about two-thirds of, of Pennsylvania, we had the results dead on. When we compared our results in, in those counties versus what we had in the poll, they were dead on. Where we were off was in the rural part of Pennsylvania. What we found is not people, were, people weren't lying to us about who, how they were going to vote that the Democrats who were going to vote for Trump or the lean Democrats who were going to vote for Trump weren't talking about it. So they were less likely to answer a poll than they had been in the past. And what we found from doing our follow-up work was it wasn't just about answering poll questions. They actually weren't talking to their family members <laughs> about how they were going to vote. They didn't want to hear it. We already are seeing there's some of that still exists today. So we have to factor that in. But as I said, that's only 1%. Now, if we're talking about a couple of different factors that, that are 1% or 2%, and they add up to 4 or 5%, but you don't know which ones are at play at which particular time, the key thing that we need to do is to get the media to start saying when a, when a 4 or 5-point poll or a bunch of 4 or 5-point polls come in, is that saying there's still error around this. While it looks like it's leaning towards Biden or leaning towards Trump, there still is enough error around this that we can only characterize this as a close election. There is unknowns, there are, there's error and unknowables inherent in polling, and we need to be more cognizant about that and talk about that a little bit more. Look, if we see you know, Joe Biden's ahead by 10 points in every poll in Michigan, then yes, Joe Biden is ahead. And if he loses that, the polls were definitely wrong. But if we see Joe Biden ahead by four points on average, and Donald Trump ends up being able to squeak out a win by uh, 10, 15,000 votes in Michigan, then the polls were not necessarily wrong. It's only the depiction of the polls. The media was saying Joe Biden's definitely going to win this based on a bunch of polls that only had him up by three or four points. We're going to take a quick break. And when we return, I'd like to talk to you about that particular subject and how you're dealing with 2020 when the people who actually vote are going to be a little up in the air. We'll be right back. It will be okay. On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Co. Media. So what you gonna do about it? We're back with Patrick Murray, Monmouth University Polling Institute, and Ed Larson and Jane Albrecht. So, Patrick, we were talking about what happened in 2016, and now as we get to 2020, there are a lot of interesting factors that you've probably not been dealing with before, like the pandemic, how it's going to affect people actually leaving their homes and voting, where you can have a mail-in ballot and where the mail-in ballots might not happen. How are you controlling for that? We don't know yet, because I'll be honest with you, we, we stopped our state-level polling as the pandemic hit. Uh, we were polling in the Democratic primary. Uh, we polled Michigan in early March and then Arizona. And Arizona and Michigan, our poll was great. But Arizona, what happened was between the time we polled 
and the time the election happened, which was only a couple of days between them, is that there was a huge shift in people not showing up to vote in person uh, because of the unrolling pandemic. And more people voted in, by mail or by drop-off than had voted ever before. But the people that we had in our poll, many of them who were going to vote in person just simply did not vote. And so we dropped our, our polling at the state level because of that. Uh, so the, the larger question is, okay, so what are you going to do about this? And I said, part of it was we don't know yet because the states haven't told us exactly how they're going to run the election in November. Because we, we already know from our past polling that in March that this is going to be a big issue. So over the weekend, I think you tweeted, rarely does a poll result surprise me because I'm open to whatever the data will reveal. Change is usually either incremental or momentary, but there's something fundamentally different in these results. And you were reflecting upon results where almost 60% of the people that you polled said that police officers facing a difficult or dangerous situation would be more likely to use excessive force if the culprit is black compared to the one-third who say that police are just as likely to use excessive force against a black or white culprit. You were pretty surprised by that. Yes, I was, because it was a significant sea change. Uh, it, just four years ago, only about a third of the public said that. Now, now we're close to six and 10 who say that. That's a big shift. And I had been asking that question for a couple of years, and uh, there are other incidents, Eric Gardner and so forth. They didn't change opinion all that much. It was incremental. And this opinion is changing among white. And to me, as somebody who's been measuring public opinion for 25 years, there are certain things that stand out to you that you say, oh, this is different than I've ever seen in a poll before in terms of a shift. And that was one of them. And that's, that's where your understanding of so sociology and psychology comes into play. So what are some of the other ways that Monmouth University polling is trying to understand the Black Lives Matter movement, its resilience or lack thereof? We were doing that polling just as the protests were, st were starting with uh, the George Floyd murder. And what we were finding was that the initial violence, people were saying, oh, I don't like the violence. And we've gotten that all along. And usually what will happen is, particularly among white respondents, they'll see the violence and say, well, that undercuts the the um, validity of the cause. And what we were finding in our questions was if you ask a separate question, they said, well, we don't like the violence, but we fully understand where that anger is coming from. And that's a key difference that, than I've seen before. With the Black Lives Matter movement, have we actually gotten to the point where we're going to take it seriously and it'll live long term? Or could it qualify for that momentary concept? I put it this way because... As I said, I've seen something different in this polling number, something, something that is a harder change, a more, a more permanent change. But because I see it as a permanent change now, doesn't mean it will remain permanent. What I can say is I've seen a window open to a discussion about race and systemic racism that we haven't seen in the past. And so the question is, does that, that window stay open? And it depends on how that conversation develops. But the potential for that staying open that conversation continuing is at a level that it's never been at before. What can we learn from the polls? How can we use what you learn as a way to change our actions so that we can make sure that this is more of a long-term change rather than this week's fad? Well, what we do know about how people behave is that they close off their willingness to engage in new discussions when fear is involved. 
And that has been the case in every past situation is, yes, this is a problem, but I need to protect myself. Well, the president's rhetoric plays on that fear. It has had actually had the opposite effect because he hasn't done what other past politicians have done, which is acknowledge that there's some sort of ephemeral problem out there and we're going to do something unnamed to address it. But the violence that these people are, are using to express their, their point of view will undermine your safety and security in the neighborhoods where you live. What Trump is just saying is their behavior is bad and everybody's behavior who's supporting them is bad. So they're putting all these white people in the same boat with, with the black people who are protesting and other people of color who are protesting. And so white people are now saying, wait, he's calling me the, the enemy. So he's not having the effect of uh, promoting fear among them. Uh, he's actually promoting, pushing them into solidarity. Ironically, probably one of the things that, that can happen here is for Trump to continue what he's doing in this rhetoric because it's, it's pushing those people who are willing to have said that they're willing to, to engage in this conversation to continue to engage in this conversation. Now, the thing that you, you don't want to do is you want, don't want to divert attention. As I mentioned, you don't want to divert attention and dilute what this, this is all about. I mean, this is about systemic racism, which has been a scourge for our country since slavery. And so if you, you want to make sure that you continue to concentrate on that. Going back to what you just had talked about, Patrick, the fact that what's happened has opened a window to discussion in a way that hadn't been open before, but people tend to close off such discussions when fear is involved. Do you have any sense yet for how the moniker defund the police could feed into that? It's not just Trump playing on the, the fear of the violence of the protests. I don't think that will get that far. But because defund the police, if you know what's behind it, it's really about deep reform of policing. But the moniker they chose is uh, radical and uh, seems extreme. And I could see people saying, hey, I really think we should address this, this situation of systemic racism and police brutality. But I don't know if I want to trust the Democrats to do this because they would defund the police. So how is that going to play into this ability to move forward? Jane, you, you read my mind because that, that's the key. That's what I'm talking about in terms of keeping this conversation open. It's not whether the public fully understands what defund the police means. It's what their perceptions are. People act based on their perceptions of reality, not what reality is. And that's something that polling can measure. We can't measure in-depth analysis of, of people thinking about solutions for racism. What we can measure is the things that are going on out there in the world, how are they reacting to them? And is that going to potentially have an impact on their, not only their attitudes, but their behaviors? Is defund the police, is that something that can stoke fear? Or has the conversation moved enough that people feel, oh, I know what that really means, even if they don't know exactly what that really means, their perception is that, yeah, I know it doesn't mean fully that. So that, then do we get a tipping point where that pushes that too far? We don't know. And that's, that's why you need polling. Can you tell us how your polls have gauged the effect of the pandemic on the next elections? And have you been able to test that at all? Less about predicting what's going to happen in an election versus what we actually saw in, in terms of moving the needle. Uh, Trump got an initial bump in his approval rating in March because there's this rally effect. People want to be able to rally around the leader. Again, this goes back to fear. 
when, the, when there's an attack on us, and, and this pandemic is an attack on our security and our safety, and you want a strong leader to be able to do that. What's interesting was why he got a bump. He got nowhere near the bump that our state governors got, that other foreign leaders got in their own countries, because the opinion about Trump is baked in. So what we found is there's a lot of polling out there that said, oh, older people who are more susceptible to the virus uh, are turning against Trump because of his response to COVID. What I, when I looked at the poll, I said, well, no, th these, these differences existed before COVID. What they're only doing is reinforcing what people already thought about President Trump. Whether you like him or dislike him, it, it had a reinforcing effect. Let's talk about some of the more detail aspects of pandemic and see if you've polled for it. For example, the opening of the economy versus the health risks and the potential for a bump and, and hospitals having more issues. Have you tested those points? Yeah, we get by about two to one margin. People are more concerned about opening too quickly because of the health impact than they are concerned about opening too slowly because of the economic impact. And that's been pretty stable throughout this. That's interesting. Is that nationwide or is that state by state? That's nationwide. You know, the impression I think a lot of us have is that funding can affect a poll's outcome. Does it matter who's paying for the poll? I guess it does. I mean, we don't do paid polls. So uh, it's not so much that they bias their polls when they do that. But when you're dealing with a client, it actually comes out in the, in the questions that you ask and the questions that you choose not to ask. That is where I tend to see the bias. It's not in the, in, the, in the results themselves, but in let's avoid this part of the issue seems to be the bigger bias. That's interesting that you said you, you don't charge for your polling. So um, how does Monmouth University get its funding for this? So Monmouth University is doing this as a public service. Uh, this is one of the areas. Uh, we have a, a number of other research institutes. Uh, we have uh, something called the Urban Coast Institute, uh, for example, that does research on the urban environment, the interaction of public policy and science. And you know, we do that in order to take the expertise that we have inside the university and share it outside the university. So this is one of the things that Monmouth does. Now, obviously, it also helps to give Monmouth publicity and people hear the Monmouth name, and that's always good because every college spends money on marketing and communications. So this is one of the ways that we do some of that as well. Interesting. So being that we've only got a few minutes left, I can't help but ask you if right now you had to lay down a bet based on the polls that you've put out there and the trends you've watched over the last two decades, can you call our next election? No, presidential no absolutely election? not. Absolutely. You're not even going to take a stab a at it. No way. In and then in fact, um, uh, and, uh, don't take this personally, Bill, but I'm, uh, I'm offended by that question. Um, and <laughs> because I, I, this is, this is, this is my bugaboo is that polls do not predict. I don't predict. I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know what's going to happen. I get these questions from, from reporters all the time. Well, what does, what happened yesterday mean for four months down the line? I have absolutely no clue because if I did, I'd be using that money to go bet on the horses or, or you know, or play the lottery, not to, not to do polling. Patrick, can you explain a little bit of the difference between what Monmouth does and the the pollsters that the presidential campaigns employ? My understanding is that that at this stage, the presidential campaigns will have very capable pollsters, and they will be polling down to the district. But if you could explain a little the difference between what you do and what someone, even a top pollster working for a presidential campaign would do these days. Right. Uh, I've said that, you know, our polling 
industry is is pretty open in, in terms of sharing information with us. One area that's not as open are the campaign pollsters. Uh, they play everything close to the vest because what they're doing at this particular stage of the race is they're testing messages. They say, I have this information about my opponent and I have 16 different negative pieces of information about my opponent. Which one is do I think is going to be most effective and with which group of voters? If so, because you're only going to target that group of voters with you know, online ads or TV ads or whatever it is, these messages. So which message is going to be most effective to do that? That's called message testing. So that's what these pollsters are doing. The other thing that they're doing is then looking at these different groups and saying, okay, if we can move this group over here and we can move X percentage of them, how does that affect our likelihood to win that state? And that's what those, we're not doing that because that's not, that's not, our, that's not our mission. Our mission is to simply say, this is what is on the minds of the voters. This is what they think is, is the lay of the land today. This is what they are, care about. Their mission is to say, how do, I win, how do I help win the next election for my client? And I do that by figuring out what messages are going to work best for them, where, where do they spend the resources, and also where do they spend the resources in getting out the vote in the hopes that this will push them over the top in close elections. Patrick, do you mind if we do just a rapid fire asking your opinion of the following subjects? I'd like you to rank them 1 to 10, 10 being highest, whether or not your polls have revealed that these issues may or may not affect state or federal elections. I'll try. Race, Black Lives Matter. I think that's about an 8 right now. Handling of COVID-19. It's either a 5 or a 10, depending on how you look at it. People won't react to it specifically, but it's the undercurrent of what they think is going on in the world. Supreme Court. Uh, two. Except in Maine. <laughs> in the Maine Senate race, I think the Supreme Court could play out with Susan Collins. Uh, other than that, it's going to be a two. How about women's rights to choose? Again, one or two specific uh, Senate races, Maine being one of them. Other than that, uh, not an overarching issue. Uh, not an issue that's going to change minds. So I would say it's, it's three or four. When you say it's going to be an issue, and it could be an issue in Maine, the Supreme Court, would it help Susan Collins or hurt her? Which way does it cut? Hurt her now because of her uh, response and her uh, dealing with uh, the Kavanaugh appointment. That's going to hurt her because even though she personally is, is pro-choice, the, the steps that she's taken along the way and her explanation, her very weak explanation for what she did in the Kavanaugh hearing keeps undermining itself. So, for example, Kavanaugh was one of the dissenting votes on the uh, the LGBT ruling of the Supreme Court. Right. So everything that's going to all just feed into Susan Collins is not that Susan Collins is anti-gay, but that Susan Collins or anti um, anti-abortion, either one of those, but that Susan Collins really is is not effective and is, is being played. Which leads us to the next one, LGBT. Again, I, you know, remember, I look at, I take this from, from the 40,000 foot view above. For many people, individuals, that is a very important issue. In terms of affecting this election and changing this election, it's a two or a three. Okay. Lies. Hmm. A two, because you believe what you're going to believe. History of womanizing, abuse, me too. That's going to be a, a, a two or a three in terms of changing the outcome. International relations, China and Mexico. Two or a three, barring something happening. Pro-business at all costs, oil and so on. That could be a six or a seven. Environment at all costs. I think before 
the events of the past couple of weeks that could have been a six or a seven, I think it's down to a four or five now. Economy versus economy because of a pandemic. The economy is going to be a nine or a 10, but not necessarily in the way that you might think. Oh, well, then you got to give me a little color. Okay. All right. So a lot of people are looking at uh, the economic issues in terms of overall employment rates or GDP or, uh, or stock market. And those don't matter as much, again, as perceptions of how people feel that they are doing relative to everybody else. And right now, people are feeling that relative to everybody else, they're doing okay, even if they're suffering from short-term layoffs and so forth, because they believe those layoffs are going to be short-term. If those layoffs become long-term in November, then that's going to shift the equation. Interesting. Healthcare for all. As of right now, it doesn't look like it's going to be as much of an issue as it would have been a month ago. So maybe I'll say a seven or an eight. Okay. How about presence, ability to appear presidential? Ten. And it's not that it's changing anybody's mind, but that's why people think what they do about Donald Trump right now. And as long as Joe Biden it doesn't show himself to be unpresidential, I think it's he's going to hold on to that as well. This is good, but that that is going to be extremely important. Interesting. Patrick, this has been a pleasure and uh, enlightening for me. Uh, I hope you'll come back and join us a few times before the election because I got through about a third of my questions. Uh, You've been a good sport. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Anytime. Take care. Jane Albrecht, thank you very much. And Ed Larson, this is Politics. Meet me in the middle. Come back and see us again. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends and let us know how we're doing by leaving a comment. It really helps if you give us a five-star rating, and we really appreciate it. You can also subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. This episode was produced and edited by Mike Thomas, audio engineering by Michael Kennedy, and the theme music was composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. Thanks for listening. Kirkco Media. Media for your mind.